Thank you for joining us today. At ResLife, our mission is to develop committed followers of Jesus Christ to reach the world. Our content is created to equip and empower you in God's purpose. We hope you enjoy this message. First of all, I want to welcome you again. And uh, if you are a veteran, on behalf of everybody here at Resurrection Life Church, we want to thank you so much for your service. We appreciate you very much. Thank you. Thank you. Uh, secondly, uh, we mentioned that next weekend, David Barton is going to be here. Uh, David Barton is not only a theologian, but a constitutional, I don't know how to say it. He's an, he's an expert like no other. In fact, uh, someone has actually hired two people full time to just blog against everything that he says and writes. Uh, you, you know, you're irritating somebody pretty good when they do that, don't you? Uh, but he's going to be here next weekend, just a Sunday morning, and we are really, really looking forward to it. Now, today, I, I want to start in the Old Testament, in the book of Habakkuk, but I, I want to talk to you to begin with about literally the most quoted verse in the Bible. Not that we quote, but that the Bible quotes. Think about that. In fact, uh, this is the verse that Martin Luther found when he was studying the book of Romans that turned his life upside down, that the just shall live by faith. It's actually a quote from Habakkuk, but it's found in Romans, it's found in Galatians, and it's found in Hebrews. Three times in the New Testament, this verse is quoted. And it's Habakkuk 2 in verse 4, and it says, Behold the proud. Uh, it's true in general, talking about prideful people, but this particular the proud is actually a reference to the Antichrist. And uh, for those that, of you that are really interested in end times, when you read Isaiah, the Antichrist in Isaiah is referred to as the Assyrian. Maybe a little bit of a hint to where he's going to come from, the Assyrian. But it says, behold the proud, that his soul is not upright within him, but the just shall live by faith. Uh, what, what has happened over the last 250 years, particularly in what I would refer to as Western Christianity, that we have made Christianity post-mortem. In other words, we've made Christianity about when you die and what happens after you die. But that is not what the Bible does. The Bible says that Christianity is about today. It's about how you live. The just shall do what by faith? Live by faith. And so Christianity is not about Sunday. It's not about religious stuff or spiritual stuff. Now it is, but it's also about your work, your play, your family, your habits, your marriage, your money, your entertainment, your sex life, and anything else you can think of. Because the just live by faith. So Christianity, here's what we've kind of done. We've, we've kind of made Christianity by and by pie in the sky. But real Christianity is about pie now and then pie later. 
But it's not just about when you die. It's about how you live. In fact, when the apostles are, are, are preaching in, in Acts chapter 5, the, uh, the, the religious authorities take them, have them thrown in prison. And an angel comes and opens the door and go and say, go to the temple court. And this is what the angel said. And tell the people the full message of this new life. This new what? Life. And, and notice it's new. So when you become a Christian, what happens is not just that your eternal destiny changes, where you're going to spend eternity. Yes, it changes, but that's not all that happens. Something is supposed to happen in you because your life is supposed to be new. It's supposed to be different than what it was before. So it's not just about spiritual things, and it's not just about when you die. It's about every part of your life. In fact, someone has said, if Jesus is not Lord of all your life, he's not Lord at all of your life. When Jesus came, this is what Jesus said. This is his first words preaching. He says, repent. Why? In fact, some translations say, rethink your life because God's kingdom is here. Not when I die and go to heaven, but God's kingdom is where it is. It's here. He says, if I cast out demons by the finger of God, then the kingdom of God has come near to you. I think it's interesting that in one chapter, Jesus gives six parables about the kingdom of God. Now, this is not what he says. He doesn't say that Christianity is like a kingdom. He says the kingdom of God is like. In other words, what Jesus came to do was to start a kingdom and to announce a kingdom. Now, as Americans, we don't really get it because we don't have a king. We have a president and he misbehaves, he can get impeached. And even if he's good, his terms run out. Right? No matter what, he's going there, there, it is temporary. But let me tell you something about Jesus. You cannot impeach him and his term will not run out. He, he's, he's king of kings, but he's king forever and ever. But what Jesus came to say was the kingdom is here. So what we have thought is that Christianity was about getting me to heaven. But what Jesus told us was completely different, that Christianity is about getting heaven in you now and through you. He said, pray your kingdom come, your will be done on, on where? On earth, just like it is in heaven. And we thought the whole thing was let's get to heaven. But from Jesus' perspective is let's get heaven in you now. So salvation is really about a kingdom. In fact, we can actually say, and this will shake you, but I'll just shake you for a second, all right, and then I'll save you. But salvation is about politics. But it's not about being a Republican or a Democrat or an independent. It's about coming under God's rule and reign. Jesus was crucified because he was a king. Above his head on that cross, in three languages, it says the king of the Jews. He came as a king. 
And he came to bring God's kingdom to earth. In fact, the reason that you and I are here is to bring the kingdom. If we just wanted to get you to the kingdom, when we baptize you, we just leave you under. <laughs> Send you right away before you have a chance to mess up, right? But, but God's purpose for you is not to get you there. It's to have what's in heaven in you and through you. Jesus said, don't look and say the kingdom of God is here or there. The kingdom of God is within you. It's what God does down on the inside. About every six months, every year or so, I bring out this, this uh, translator's New Testament. You may not realize this, the Bible is the most translated book in the world. Uh, just Wycliffe Bible translators alone have translated the New Testament over 1,500 times and portions of the New Testament over 3,300 times. But if you were to say, you know, I'm, I'm going to become a missionary and I'm going to go up the Amazon and I'm going to find an, an unreached people and I'm going to learn their language and then I'm going to translate the Bible into their language. Well, because you're not a Greek or Hebrew scholar, this is one of the main tools that you're given. It's simply called the Translator's New Testament, and it is a translation of the New Testament. But in the back, it's just got notes on everything for translators to make sure that they translate things right. So, John 3.16, for God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son, that whoever believes in him should not perish, but have eternal life or everlasting life. Here's the note on that eternal life. In the New Testament, eternal life is the kind of life which is given to all true believers in Christ. Now, here's what I want you to catch. The word eternal draws attention to the quality of that life, not to its duration in a temporal sense. So in other words, when the Bible says you receive Jesus and you receive eternal life, it's not talking about how long it lasts. Now, does it last forever? Yes. Other verses for that. It's forever. But the word eternal draws attention to its quality. It came from the eternal one. It's the life that God, in fact, uh, E.W. Vine in his expository dictionary of New Testament words says it this way. It's life as God has life. God puts inside you a little bit of his very own life and nature down on the inside of you. First John said it's his seed, that it remains in you. So it's not talking about how long it lasts. It's talking about where it came from. It came from the eternal one. It came from the eternal realm. It came from God. And it's not just talking about its duration in a temporal sense. Thus, eternal life can be experienced by believers even while subject to temporal conditions of earthly life. Translators should be careful to avoid expressions which mean no more than a timeless continuation of life after death. But most Christians, all they think, I'm forgiven, and when I die, I'm going to live forever. But the, 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 right here, it tells us, no, be careful when you're translating the Bible that you don't leave people thinking that it just means you're forgiven and you're going to live forever. Because that eternal life doesn't begin when you die. 
It becomes, it begins when you receive Jesus. It's for now. It is for now. And, and I said that the kingdom is political. It is. Because when Jesus comes back, well, six times in five verses in Revelation 20, it says that he will rule and reign for a thousand years. And after that, an eternal kingdom. Theologians call the 1,000 years the millennial reign of Christ. And they just simply call the other the eternal kingdom. But listen to, to Daniel chapter 2 and verse 44. In the days of those kings, the king of heaven, or the God of heaven, excuse me, will set up a kingdom which shall never be destroyed. And the kingdom shall not be left to other people. And it shall break in pieces and consume all these kingdoms. And it shall stand for, how long? Forever. Forever. It will stand forever. Now notice that it's going to break in pieces and consume all of the other kingdoms of this world. Now, what that is telling us is that, well, in, in 1 John, it says that the whole world lies in the sway, other translations say, in the hand of the wicked one. How many of you know that the culture that we're living in, it's crazy? It's absolutely crazy. I was thinking about it this morning, and I thought, you know, if you break an eagle's egg, you will go to jail. But yet, you can, you can abort a baby that's created in the image and likeness of God with an immortal destiny, and people celebrate it. You realize that's crazy. That's absolutely crazy. But the culture that we're in, the Bible says that it's under the sway of the wicked one. In Romans 12, in verse 2, it says, don't be conformed to this world, but be transformed. Now, what it's saying is don't be a cookie cutter of what your culture is, what's going on around you. And why? Because we are part of a new kingdom, of a new life. It's a different kingdom. It's a different life. In fact, it says in th first excuse me, second Thess first Thessalonians chapter 2. To work out your salvation with fear and trembling. In other words, God does something here on the inside. But what you and I need to do is get it on the outside. Uh, I don't know if, if you, you may, may not have ever thought about this, but uh, there are no hospitals that have the first atheist hospital. Have you ever thought about that? You know, it's St. Mary's, it's St. Jude's, it's Peter's, it's the Baptists, it's the Lutherans. And, and why is it that Christians want to start hospitals? Why is it they've always wanted to do that? Because they want to minister and bring the kingdom to the hurting and the sick and the diseased and the oppressed. Why is it that it's, you go to India and you find an orphanage, it's a Christian orphanage. They don't have any Buddhist orphanages. You say, why not? Well, because the Buddhists believe that the reason that you're an orphan is because of what you did in a previous life. And you need to pay for all that you did in your previous life. And if I help you today, then you have to come back and suffer again later, and it's better for you to suffer now. So I'm not going to help you. But you know what the Christians do? They see that and they say there is a precious life created in the image and likeness of God and we need to extend God's love and God's mercy to that person. It's a different kingdom. We think different. And even in our culture, 
There has been, it has been so affected by the kingdom of God, by the Christian worldview. So we're not here to build our kingdom, but his kingdom. Not to do our will, but his will. You know, I, I look at Christians today and they say, man, I'm going to heaven. And God, you're just lucky if I show up to church once in a while. Hello. Absolutely. And, and we're not looking to be an extension of the kingdom of God today. We're just looking for something to happen tomorrow. Now, Joshua chapter 1a, this, that's my first introduction. I've got two. All right, Joshua 1a, this book of the law should not depart out of your mouth, but you shall meditate therein day and night that you may observe to do according to all that's written therein. And then you will make your way prosperous and have good success. Now, I want you to turn to the person next to you and say, have good success. You see, there's bad success. Did you know that? You can have good success or you can have bad success. Uh, <laughs> what this verse tells us to do is it tells us to talk the word, to think about the word, to meditate, and then to do the word so that we will have not just success, but good success, because all success is not good for you. And all success is not good for those around you. For example, you can have success because of neglect. I would just kind of call this situational success. Right? You have success in one area of your life at the cost of another area of your life. And you may be acclaimed by society, been very successful in business or in sports, but you lost your marriage or your marriages and your kids don't want to have anything to do with you and won't talk to you. Now, somebody might call that success, but it's not good success. It's a bad success. Uh, you've got some sort of an addictive behavior, drugs, alcohol, porn, fear, anger. There's something there. And yeah, you, you, have, you have succeeded in a certain area, but you have neglected the important things. You've neglected family. You've neglected your marriage, your integrity. You've neglected your health or other key areas. Jesus talked about this in Luke 11. And he's talking to the Pharisees. He says, I've had it with you. You're hopeless, you Pharisees, you frauds. You meticulously account books, tithing on every nickel and dime you get, but manage to find loopholes for getting around basic matters of justice and God's love. Careful bookkeeping is commendable, but the basics are required. How many of you know you can neglect the basics and focus on one thing and maybe have some sort of level of success in the world's eyes. But if you neglect the basics that are required, your life in some areas is going to fall apart. It's going to fall apart. That's not good success. That's bad success. Now, the world may acclaim that and think, wow, that's awesome. But you have achieved success through neglect. And I would like to just add that the devil will give you success if it will keep you from focusing on the kingdom of God. If it'll, he'll, he'll keep you so busy. Do you realize this, that success brings distractions? It just brings distractions right along with it. It'll keep you so busy. 
It'll take you away from your family, take you away from church, from the kingdom of God, from worship. He'll give you a new boat if it'll keep you on the lake and away from the things of God and the kingdom. He's not opposed to that. He'll give you a big salary, all to keep you from God's plan and God's purpose for your life. We don't want to neglect something so that we achieve a level of success in one area, but the rest of our life falls apart. In Luke 16, it talks about a certain rich man who was clothed in purple and fine linen, fared sumptuously every day. But there was a certain beggar named Lazarus, full of sores, that was laid at his gate. And he desired to be fed from the crumbs which fell from the rich man's table. And moreover, the dogs came and licked his sores. Now, there he was daily living opulently in, in nothing but consumption about himself. But he was forgetting something very important. He was forgetting others that were in need around about him. Was he successful? Well, you read the rest of the story, and he may have had the world's success, but not God's success. Jesus told another story about a a rich farmer, and the world thought he had it all. But what Jesus said was, you fool. Today, your life is required of you. And then who is going to have all this stuff that you've left behind? He was focused on the wrong things. And God wants us to avoid neglect and have good success. And when we take our time and we speak the word, we think about the word, we meditate in the word, we do the word, the Bible says we will have good success. Another thing that can really cause us to veer off, and and this is so true. You know, we live in one of the most affluent societies the world has ever, ever seen. People that we consider to be below the poverty line would be looked at as millionaires in other parts of the world. But the Bible says that hope deferred makes the heart sick. And here's what sometimes happens. We just have this unrelenting disappointment. We focus on what we do not have on what we have not achieved, on what has not happened. And we're constantly, why not, why not, why not, why not, instead of having a thankful heart for what we have. And what happens when there's that continual disappointment, the Bible says it makes the heart sick. And it literally steers us away from God's plan and God's purpose for our lives. In Ecclesiastes 4, it says this, Better a handful with quietness than both hands full together with toil and grasping for the wind. Other translations with striving. It says, you know, if you just have one handful and you're thankful, it's better than having a handful and a handful and just constantly trying to have more and more and more and not being thankful for what you already have. One translation says it this way. But I say it's better to be content with the little you have Otherwise, you will always be struggling for more, and that's like chasing the wind. The Bible says that if you love silver, you'll not be satisfied with silver, no matter how much you get. It's probably 20 years ago I read a book, and in this book they were interviewing a a billionaire, excuse me, and they asked him, how much money is enough? And he said, just one billion more. Just one more. You know, if we're not thankful where we are, 
We will continually be going, I've got to have more, I've got to have more. We've got to focus on the blessings that God has given us. 1 Thessalonians 5, verse 18, and everything give thanks for this is the will of God in Christ Jesus concerning you. Thankful hearts and really the greatest mental health agent in the world is thankfulness. When we are thankful to God, I can't imagine being an atheist and having nobody to be thankful to. Could you? Terrible thing. First Corinthians chapter one, verse 18. The message of the cross, the gospel, is foolishness to those who are being destroyed. But it is the power of God to those of us who are being saved. The message of the cross, the gospel, what Jesus did in his death, burial, resurrection, and ascension. Those things, it is the power of God. In fact, in Romans 1.16, it says this. It says that the gospel is the power of God to everyone who believes. What that means is this, that the very power that was present in the event is available to you when you believe the message. The gospel is the message about what Jesus did. And the Bible says it is the power of God. That message, when you believe the message, the very same power that was in the event becomes available to you and to me. And I don't know about you, but I'm telling you, that's the best news I think I have ever heard. Now, the way that God wants to stop the devil is with your mouth. Now, I'm going to say something, and you can look this up, but you look in your Bible in the New Testament, there is no place in the New Testament where Christians ask God to do something about the devil. You know, we pray and we say, God, get the devil. But he already got him. He got him in the death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus. The Bible says that he stripped him of all of his power and authority. And he made a public spectacle of him, triumphing over him in the cross. But what he did was gave that victory to you and me. Do you realize that Jesus did not defeat the devil to prove he could? He defeated the devil for you and for me. And when Jesus arose from the dead, ascended into heaven, the Bible says he sat down. Now, he did not sit down because he was tired. He sat down because he was finished. He sat down because it was completely finished. Your redemption was paid for. The enemy was defeated. And what Jesus did was he gave us authority. The Bible says, resist the devil. He will flee from you. He will flee from you. But we say, oh, God, get the devil. And God's like, hey, you do it. I gave you the authority in Christ to do that. So God's way of stopping the devil is with your mouth. Psalmist said, I will bless the Lord at all times and his praise will continually be in my mouth. Let the redeemed of the Lord say so. Psalms 8, verse 2. Out of the mouth of babes and nursing infants, you have ordained strength because of your enemies that you may silence the enemy and the avenger. Now, where is it going to come out of? Out of the mouth. 
right? What do you do? You silence the enemy and the avenger. When something is coming out of your mouth. I love the story in Acts 16 where Paul and Silas are preaching and uh, the, the local people get mad. They take them and they whip them. They put them in prison. They're down in the dungeon. Their hands and their feet are in stocks. Their backs are bleeding. It's midnight. And the Bible says they begin to sing praises to God. And the prisoners heard them. And the Bible tells us that suddenly at midnight. Now, I believe it was literally midnight, but I think it's a picture of a midnight in our life. When things are the darkest, when there seems to be no hope, they're praising God. And the Bible says that suddenly there is an earthquake and every person's chains fell off. They fell off. When? When they begin to worship God, when they begin to praise God. And that's what you and I need to be doing. We need to let his praises continually be in our mouth, even when it's dark, even when it's midnight. You know, they tell us that, how many of you have been on an airliner, flew someplace? You know, the, the pilot of that, that, that's piloting that plane has literally thousands of hours of experience. But when you begin to fly, you are simply VFR, you, have, you fly with visual flight rules which simply means you need to be able to see where you're going. And if you can see, you can fly. But after you've done that for a while, you will probably want to become an instrument rated flyer. And what happens then, you don't need to see anything because you fly by just looking at the instruments that are in front of you. Now, if you are not instrument rated and you fly into a cloud, in 90 seconds, the best of us become totally disoriented. In just 90 seconds. You, you think you're going up, but you're actually going down. You think you're going right, but you're actually going left. You do not know what's going on because you cannot see anything outside your plane 10 feet away. And you don't know what's going on. And you think you will tell me for sure we are going down, but you're going up. And you will think you're going, you're, you're going at one direction, you're going in a different direction. In 90 seconds, you will lose all reference to what direction, up, down, you'll lose yourself. Now, if you've got those instruments and you pay attention to the instruments, they're going to tell you the truth. You're going to think, man, I'm going up. And you look and you're like, no, I'm going down. They'll tell you. Now, in life, because of all of the situations that you and I face, because of the culture that we live in, we can think that we're going in one direction and we're going in another. You can think you're going up and you're going down or going down and you're going up. But our instrument, our instruments as Christians, it's God's word. God's word is our instrument. Now, the Bible tells us a story about Jesus coming to the disciples, walking on the water. And when the disciples saw him walking on the water, they were troubled, saying, it's a ghost. And they cried out for fear. But immediately Jesus spoke to them, saying, be of good cheer. It's I, don't be afraid. Peter answered and said to him, Lord, if it's you, command me to come to you on the water. So he said, come. And when Peter had come out of the boat, he walked on the water to go to Jesus. But when he saw the wind boisterous, he was afraid and began to sink and cried out, saying, Lord, save me. 
And immediately Jesus stretched out his hand, caught him and said to him, oh, you have little faith. Why did you doubt? Now, I've heard people pick on Peter, but I just want to say, Peter, bravo. I know Jesus said little faith. If Jesus was talking to you and me, he'd be going, oh, you have little, 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 little faith. Peter got out of the boat. Peter walked on water. How about you? But now look what happened when he got in trouble. When he saw the wind boisterous, like Peter knew when he saw the wind, you cannot walk on water on windy days. <laughs> now, honestly, what difference did the wind make? The wind didn't make any difference, but it did to him. See, he began by taking Jesus' word, come. And literally, we say he walked on the water, but the truth is he walked on Jesus' word. Jesus said, come, and he was walking on that word. And when he began to look at the circumstances around him, he's like, this is impossible. Well, it was impossible before he looked at the circumstances. <laughs> totally. See, when you and I look at the word of God, it's our plumb line. It's true. And it will hold you up above the water, above the storms, above the circumstances. David said, yea, though I walk through the valley of the shadow of death, I will fear no evil for you are with me. And he will see you through the valley. And I've said it before, you may be in a valley, but God's plan is that that valley not be your finale. So he wants to bring you through the valley to the other side. And there he's David said, he prepares a table before me in the presence of my enemy. He anoints my head with oil. My cup overflows and surely goodness and mercy will follow me all the days of my life. And I will dwell in the house of the Lord forever. How long does this last? Forever, forever. But that eternal life that he put on the inside of you is not talking about how long it lasts. It's talking about where it came from, that God has put in you his own life, that you'd be a part of his kingdom and that you would manifest that kingdom every place that you and I go. Would you bow your heads for just a moment? Thank you for watching and being a part of our online family. Subscribe to our channel for access to all of our videos and live services. You can also be notified when a new service becomes available if you ring the notification bell. We cannot do this without you. You can support this ministry and help us reach more people with the word by giving at reslife.org give. Thanks again for watching. Be blessed.